Welcome to the Unconventional RD Podcast, where we inspire dietitians to think outside of the traditional employment box and create their own unconventional income streams. We'll talk all things online business to help you start, grow, and scale your own digital empire. If you've been paying attention to the last few rounds of Google updates and announcements, you may have noticed a huge emphasis on this concept of EEAT, experience, expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness. And within this concept of EEAT, Google repeatedly emphasizes the notion that trust is the most important overarching concept when sharing information that has the potential to significantly impact someone's life, safety, or finances. Health topics, including nutrition, are considered to be topics that have a significant potential for harm when misinformation and disinformation are shared. And in case you are not clear on the difference between those two terms, Misinformation is factually incorrect information that is shared, and disinformation is when you are sharing intentionally incorrect information with the intent to mislead. And Google actually has a branch of their business known as Google Health, which focuses on all things health-related under the Google umbrella. This includes things like their wearable health devices, AI technology in healthcare, and the sharing of health information on Google's platforms like YouTube and Google Search. The Google Health team holds an annual event called Checkup to share updates on what their branch is working on, and the latest one of these updates was just recently shared in March 2023. And I have found that a lot of people in the SEO world just kind of gloss over updates from Google Health because they don't immediately find it applicable to search. But I think that that is a mistake, especially for anyone who creates health-related content online, which definitely includes a large portion of my audience, which is made up of many dietitians and other healthcare professionals. So I actually took the time to watch this hour or so long conference to pick out the information that seemed relevant for us content creators in the health space, and I'm really excited to share my takeaways with you. As I mentioned last week, I haven't really seen any prominent SEOs sharing information specifically relevant to the health niche, so I am excited to kind of carve out this niche for myself and, most importantly, for you, so that we can keep up to date on the latest information from Google and make sure that we are following best practices as soon as they become available. So what were some of the exciting developments Google Health talked about in March? They started out by emphasizing the idea that people go online to look for health information. Full stop, that is just a fact. And Google's goal is to ensure that the health information that people find when they search on Google-owned platforms is, quote, authoritative and authentic. They shared that people search for health-related topics on Google hundreds of millions of times per day. They also revealed that video is a popular avenue in which people search for health information online. In fact, in 2021, health-related YouTube videos were viewed 100 billion times. So clearly, people are looking for health information in video format as well. Google went on to talk a lot about the concept of trust. 
They said, you can have the best information and all the best tools in the world at your disposal, but it means nothing if you do not have trust first. So Google's goal is to become a trustworthy source of health information online. They talked a lot about this in the context of YouTube during this event, since that is a platform that they own, but I suspect that some of this bleeds over a bit into regular Google search as well, which I will expand upon a bit later in this episode. So Google is focusing a lot on highlighting authoritative video sources of health information on YouTube. That seems to be where they're putting their attention first. And in fact, I have mentioned this before on the podcast, they recently rolled out two new features on YouTube for health-related content, health content shelves and health source information panels. Health content shelves are basically highlighted search results at the top of YouTube search that are identified with the label from health sources. And then underneath that label, you will find a selection of a few videos on the topic that you search for that come from verified health sources. And if you click on any one of those individual videos, right underneath the video, there is something called the health source information panel, which is essentially a blue call out box, again, highlighted directly underneath the video you're watching that says, from a channel with a licensed health professional, if it's from a medical organization like a hospital or association or something like that, or it could say something like from a licensed doctor, for example, if the content was created by a verified licensed doctor. Then there is a link underneath the label that says, click here to learn more about how health professionals are licensed and how experts define health sources. So I am particularly interested in the how experts define health sources angle of this label. Since we as dietitians are healthcare professionals, I think it is extremely important to understand what Google is trying to do here and make sure that we are included whenever possible and not left behind in this wave of determining who is a trustworthy source. The goal from Google is to highlight videos from sources that they deem authoritative and to provide context in the info boxes to help the users identify videos from authoritative sources. And at this moment in time, only a handful of types of channels are eligible for this label on YouTube, which I will go into more detail on in a second. So how did this all come about? Well, a few years ago, Google actually partnered with the National Academy of Medicine to help come up with criteria to determine which types of organizations could be deemed authoritative sources within the United States. Once they had that criteria nailed down, they convened again with the National Academy of Medicine, the Council of Medical Specialties Society, and the World Health Organization to try and expand these concepts to organizations worldwide and also to apply these principles to for-profit organizations and individuals. Like, wow, this is a huge deal, and I'm actually shocked that I haven't seen anyone talking about this yet, at least in, a, in any avenue that I'm aware of. Maybe there is someone out there, but you know, I'm very excited to dig into it. I think this is going to have a huge, huge impact on our industry in the coming years, and particularly on the type of content that will end up getting the most visibility on YouTube. And, you know, depending on how this testing goes on YouTube, I would not be shocked if similar ideas bleed over into Google search as well. So let's start with the first phase of analysis that Google did, coming up with criteria to define which U.S.-based 
government health organizations and nonprofits are considered credible sources of health information. They used information from a peer-reviewed article published by the National Academy of Medicine titled Identifying Credible Sources of Health Information in Social Media, Principles and Attributes. And you can actually read these documents yourself. So I will link to them in the show notes for this episode at theunconventionalrd.com, or you can Google them and find them as well. And essentially what happened was the National Academy of Medicine convened an independent advisory group to develop principles and attributes to guide social media companies and other digital platforms in identifying and elevating, that's important, credible sources of health information in their channels. And this information that they put together, these guidelines, were actually published in 2021. And these are the guiding principles YouTube used to determine whether US-based government health organizations and nonprofits were credible sources of health information. Note again, at this point, they were still only looking at government health organizations and nonprofits. They're not talking about for-profit organizations, non-accredited nonprofits, or individuals yet. And again, this was only focused on US-based organizations at this time as well. The main point was that these organizations needed to be, quote, science-based, objective, transparent, and accountable in order to be deemed credible. Now, phase two of their research was to create guidelines for establishing the credibility of individuals, individual healthcare providers, for-profit entities, non-accredited nonprofits, and organizations worldwide. Again, this one was done by a multidisciplinary advisory committee convened by the Council of Medical Specialty Societies and the National Academy of Medicine and the World Health Organization. And they basically came to the same conclusions. Again, they said that the sources must be science-based, objective, transparent, and accountable. But they also added a fifth new factor of inclusiveness as well. Now, here comes the fun part, in my opinion. You can actually read the draft of the consensus that this team came to on how to determine whether a source meets the criteria for being science-based, objective, transparent, accountable, and inclusive. So these are the exact things that we need to be doing, whether we're representing ourselves as individuals online or whether we run larger for-profit entities or nonprofits in order to make it clear and unequivocal that we are credible sources of health information. So that's what we're going to do on this podcast today. Let's go through each criterion one by one. For some of them, there are different benchmarks for individuals, for-profit organizations, and nonprofits. So we will go over those differences when they occur as well. And again, our goal is to comb through these recommendations and think critically about how we can demonstrate these principles on our own websites and social media platforms so that if and when we are eligible to apply to be a credible health source on a platform like YouTube, we have all of our ducks in a row. So the first one, what does it mean to be science-based? The quote from the article says, sources should provide information that is consistent with the best scientific evidence available at the time and meets standards for the creation, review, and presentation of scientific content. Okay, so what does that actually mean? Well, luckily, underneath the summary statement, they include some benchmarks that you can use to see what science-based means in tangible terms. So there's eight benchmarks I wanna talk about here. 
The first one is that you must acknowledge the limitations and evolution of science. For example, early or incomplete knowledge as seen in emerging diseases, small sample size, correlation versus causation, etc. And then they bolded the next sentence, indicates when there is debate and limited clarity. So just check yourself. Are you doing that in the content that you're creating? Or are you intentionally or unintentionally only sharing the side of the story that supports your viewpoint. So they want people to be very clear about the limitations of science in the various ways that they just explained. Principle number two, clearly labels information with the date it was last updated and strives to reassess and update content. Includes attestation that this represents up-to-date information, which may change over time. So ding, ding, ding. I know this is like talking about social media, but to me, you know, I personally believe that probably the Google algorithm is leaning on some of these ideas as well, especially if you listened to last week's episode. And we saw, I personally don't think too coincidentally, that a lot of big health organizations were the ones who saw booths and these kind of for-profit editorial style large websites sharing health information saw decreases in their rankings overall over the last, not just in this update, but kind of over the last year or two. So in my mind, I'm like, whoa, maybe a lot of these ideas that they're sharing here about becoming an authoritative source of health information could be applied to your website as well. So on your blog, are you clearly putting the date when your post was last updated? This is something I talk about a lot inside my SEO Made Simple course. And then are you going in and refreshing and updating content on a periodic basis? And then also they put in bold that they want people to put a statement that their content represents up-to-date information, but it may change over time. So are you doing that? If not, do it. So if you're not sure how to set this up, again, you can put your name on the waitlist for my course at seowaitlist.com and I walk you through exactly how to set this up on your site as well. The next principle, there are some variations depending on whether or not you are representing yourself as an individual online or whether you represent a nonprofit or a for-profit company. So for individuals, they want to see that you are disclosing licensure, education, training, and scientific expertise to the platform. So again, I'm just modifying these recommendations to apply to your website. Are you disclosing all this information on your about page or your author bio page? For nonprofits and for-profits, they say demonstrates subject-specific expertise for example, consistent and well-regarded contributions in a given field. And then in bold, it says, indicates original content versus repurposing from a credible source. So if you are representing a nonprofit or a for-profit, they don't want to see you just regurgitating other people's information. If you want to be seen as like the go-to resource in your space, you need to be putting out original authoritative content that is contributing to your area of expertise. The next principle for individuals is that you link to other credible sources. So if you are creating content on a health topic, you need to cite your sources with links. So for example, linking to PubMed articles that support what you're saying. And then same thing for nonprofits and for-profits. 
but there's one more caveat. So they want you to link to other credible sources, but they also want to see you being linked to by other credible sources. So the bar is higher if you're a nonprofit or a for-profit. It's not enough for you to just cite your credible sources. You also need to be linked to as a credible source by other credible sources. So that is part of this whole, you know, building backlinks online, establishing your authority online, which we talk about again in my course. It's not easy. It's a lot of work. It takes time. But it's, again, something that's important and something to consciously work towards as you grow. The fifth tip provides accurate citations from high quality scientific sources, including peer review and validated data sources to justify claims. So again, you're not just linking to like another blog post, you're linking to articles on PubMed, for example. Number six, synthesizes information from multiple sources rather than a single source. Again, I talk about this inside my course. I give actually in lesson three a full example of how to write a blog post on a nutrition topic. So I have separate tutorials on how to write a recipe post and how to write a more nutrition focused blog post. And we talk about how to cite your sources. And this is just highlighting the importance of, you know, not just reading one paper and then using that as your source for the whole blog post, but almost like you were writing a school paper. Like, of course, you're going to be reading multiple journal articles to back up your claims, right? It's never going to be good enough to just use one article, really, unless you're just writing a like a news style update about some new piece of research that came out. And then for nonprofits and for-profits, they specifically specify that you need to use a consensus process to develop the information shared. And they don't really share what that means, but something that comes to mind perhaps is like examine.com's website. Uh, I know they share sort of their consensus process for how they vet the information that they're sharing. And then it also says for nonprofits and for-profits that you have to use peer review or another form of content review to vet the information before sharing. So they want it to be medically reviewed, for example, if you're going to share it, not just like, here's my thoughts from one individual person. If you're gonna be representing a nonprofit or a larger for-profit company, there needs to be a peer review process, essentially. So those are their guidelines for having science-based information. And that's already a lot, a ton of stuff that you could do, actionable tips to improve your content on your website in just that one principle. So let's move on to the next one. The next thing they wanna see is they want your source or your brand to be objective. And their summary of what that means is, quote, sources should take steps to reduce the influence of financial and other forms of conflict of interest or bias that might compromise or be perceived to compromise the quality of the information they provide. And the specific benchmarks they give for that are for for for-profit companies and individuals, You need to keep health information separate from financial, political, or commercial messages. And then specifically for nonprofits, they say that you need to keep health information separate from financial, political, or advocacy messages. So don't let your financial, political, or commercial messages intrude on the health information specifically that you are providing. For individuals, it says that you need to maintain independence from funders. And for nonprofits and for-profits, it says maintains independence from funders 
and has a policy about maintaining scientific independence. So you need to have a publicly available policy published that makes it clear how you do that. For all types of businesses, you need to separate lobbying activities from health information. For individuals, you need to clearly identify sponsored posts and paid partnerships in accordance with local guidelines and regulations. We talk about this in my course as well. This is not optional. (laughs) There are rules about clearly disclosing compensation to posts that you were paid for or given free product for or whatever. These are governed by the FTC and they have clear guidelines to follow. For for for-profit companies, it says that you need to clearly identify education and information versus marketing. And it also says that does not include advertisements with related health information without disclosures or does not host advertisements at all. So either you don't use advertisements if you're a for-profit company or you have to make sure that you're not including advertisements lumped in with anything, any sort of health information that's related to that advertisement unless it's clearly disclosed, which makes sense. And then for nonprofits, same thing, clearly identifies sponsored posts, paid partnerships, or advertising for fundraising purposes, does not include advertisements with related health information without disclosure, or does not host advertisements at all. The next principle, what does it mean to be transparent and accountable? The summary statement was, sources should disclose the limitations of the information that they provide, as well as conflicts of interest, content errors, or procedural missteps. And the benchmarks are, for individuals, discloses financial and non-financial conflicts, including revenue, in accordance with local guidelines and regulations. So I believe that means, you know, if you're being compensated and it could be a conflict of interest, you need to disclose that. You know, just like if you were working in academia and putting together a research paper that was funded by a food board, obviously that relationship and potential conflict of interest needs to be disclosed when that paper is published. Same idea here. So any possible conflicts, revenue that you've earned that could be construed as impacting your recommendations, perhaps, that needs to be disclosed. For for for-profit organizations, same thing, discloses financial and non-financial conflicts. And then it says discloses resulting organizational revenue. And for nonprofits, there's one more thing. Again, discloses financial and non-financial conflicts, as well as mission statements on their website. So if you run a nonprofit, that's a very clear statement that you need to have a mission statement on your website somewhere very clearly. Next, they say that you need to disclose relevant advocacy and policy positions and lobbying activities. The next one adheres to healthcare ethics and transparency principles. The next one posts public corrections or retractions, and updates are posted on a scheduled periodic basis. So, again, this is coming back to the idea that they want transparency. They want to know when there was a mistake. This is, I believe, very similar to to academia again. If you publish something and there was an error, then your job is to then publicly publish a retraction or a correction 
when necessary. So same thing for any content that you're putting out on your website or social media, follow those same guidelines, admit your mistakes, publicly correct them, and make sure that you're posting updates on a scheduled periodic basis. So don't let your content sit there for five years without being updated. We all know the health space moves quickly. Make sure that you go back on a regular basis. I would probably recommend annually and update your content. The next one provides a mechanism for public feedback. And I don't know about you, but my mind, for websites at least, immediately goes to having the comments turned on on your website. Obviously, you know, on social media, people can leave comments unless you specifically turn them off. But same thing for websites. I know a lot of people go back and forth on whether or not to have the comments open or closed on blog posts. Some of my websites I have them on, some of them I have them off. It is a bit of a beast, I have found, especially in the health niche, because people have very strong opinions oftentimes uh, and like to let you know about them in the comments, and it is a bit of a job to moderate that. But yeah, potentially, if they want to see a mechanism for public feedback, I think the comment section would count. So now this is sort of like leaning me towards the idea that having the comments on might be a good thing. And then the last one is shares data, methods, or draft recommendations, discloses efforts made to be balanced and inclusive in development of evidence-based health information. So this kind of brings me back and reminds me of some of the things that the examine.com website does. They do a really good job of sharing like their methodology and the principles that they stand behind in their business and the efforts that they are making to make improvements in the methodology for their information sharing and, you know, even things like inclusivity on their team. Just like being open and transparent with what you're doing and what you're trying to accomplish and just how you're putting your best effort forward to put out high quality, trustworthy information in a transparent and accountable way. So the transparency is like, in my opinion, based on what they're saying here, it's just like being clear and having publicly accessible documentation on like your methods and what you're doing. And then being accountable is like, owning up to when you made a mistake and not just like silently deleting it, but making an announcement that there was an error in this thing and it's been corrected, etc. The next principle was, what does it mean to be inclusive and equitable? The summary statement was, sources should prioritize inclusion of diverse, equitable, and trusted voices for health information that reflect the demographics of the audience. And there's four benchmarks in this section that apply to all types of companies, individuals, for-profits, and non-profits. Number one, uses accessible and culturally appropriate language for the intended population. So if you are writing blog content that is designed to be consumed by lay people, just make sure that you're not talking over people and you're using language that people understand. If you are going to use a medical term, make sure you define it in more simple lay people terms uh, so that people can get an understanding and value out of the content that you're putting out. The second one, avoid stigmatizing language about specific groups of people. I hope that's obvious already, but one thing that that did bring to mind is this idea of, you know, when what, what do you do when someone is typing in something into the Google search bar that is maybe a little bit politically incorrect, like diabetics, for example, instead of people with diabetes. I've seen this issue come up a few times where there's a keyword out there with really high search volume that says like 
best foods for diabetics or something like that. And you're like, ah, oh, like I don't really want to use that phrase on my website because it's stigmatizing language. But that's what people are searching for. And it's the debate of do you include it so that you rank for it and then you can like correct people inside your content, which is one strategy that I've seen people use. Or do, and I think the trend in my opinion that, that things are going towards is Google getting smarter and understanding synonyms a lot better. So whether you're writing diabetics or people with diabetes, and I think that at this point, Google is probably smart enough to understand that that means the same thing. And my guess, I'd have to look, I haven't dug into this recently. My guess would be that if you typed that same phrase, like best foods for diabetics or best foods for people with diabetes, I would imagine that very similar content shows up on the first page of the search results for both of those phrases, and they would be sort of considered the same keyword phrase. So you'd have to test that to know for sure. But my guess is that's the the way things are headed, especially if Google is trying to follow these same sort of principles of avoiding stigmatizing language. I don't think that they would then try to reward biases like that of like ranking people with stigmatizing language keywords better than people who are using the more correct phrasing. The third one, prioritize equitable access to health information. I think that if you are publishing free health information on your public website, that's pretty equitable. Anyone with the internet can reach it, so that's great. And then contextualize and make research relevant for the intended population. So that's just, this is always a good user experience check. Like, what are you actually putting out? Are you just putting out like bland, boring information? Or are you putting it into context for people to understand? Are you giving them actionable, real, relevant information that can help them make changes in their lives or understand what you're saying in a real world way? So always gut check yourself there and and double check the quality of the information you're putting out and whether it's actually like serving a helpful purpose in the world. Next, they talked a bit about the implementation of these standards. The committee, of course, acknowledged that the implementation of these standards across all social platforms would be difficult. And the committee actually said that they support, quote, creating a standardized biographical statement or attestation for individual sources to use to consistently link to key attributes, such as licensure, expertise, and conflicts across social media platforms. So basically, they're saying, like, in their dream world, there would be some sort of standardized statement that licensed healthcare professionals would need to include on their social media platforms with links to their licensure, expertise, and conflicts of interest, and that would be standardized across all the platforms. Obviously, that sounds like it would be a lot of work to coordinate and get into place, but it would be, it'll be interesting to see whether that idea materializes in the future. The paper also mentions that, quote, social media platforms are encouraged to collaborate with research experts to assess the impact of credible source labeling and elevation of the reach of credible sources, as ultimately the value of the label only derives from its public validity. So essentially they're saying like, hey, here are our thoughts on the guidelines and hopefully they're helpful, but we won't know unless we get feedback from the social media platforms. So basically like kind of hinting that, sure, maybe platforms like YouTube are going to try to utilize these principles to label credible sources and elevate the reach of credible sources with that health content shelf at the top of the search results. But then they have to make sure they're getting feedback on how what the impact of these changes are and whether they're beneficial for the user. 
So yeah, we shall see whether or not it's an effective strategy. And of course, if you're listening, the next thing you're probably thinking is, wow, how can I apply to be a health source on YouTube? This sounds great. And YouTube has already started a process where healthcare professionals can apply to be a source within the YouTube health program. But unfortunately, at this time, dietitians are not eligible to participate. Womp womp. So Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, like if anyone from A&D is listening to this podcast right now, this would be an amazing place to try and exert some influence and get RDs recognized as formal nutrition experts on YouTube. Right now, accredited hospitals, academic medical institutions, public health departments, and government organizations don't need to apply, and they are automatically eligible for this label because they've already gone through rigorous vetting processes to get those labels. Uh, So that's why you will see channels like Mayo Clinic or the American Heart Association that already have these health source labels on YouTube automatically. If you're an individual healthcare provider who wants to apply, you have to do a few things. You have to attest to the health information sharing principles, which are basically the stuff that we just discussed, and you have to be one of the following professions. You have to be a licensed doctor who is eligible to practice medicine in the relevant country. You could be a licensed nurse or registered nurse in the U.S. only. You can be a licensed psychologist or equivalent a licensed marriage and family therapist or equivalent, or licensed clinical social worker or equivalent. And if you are any of those five types of healthcare professionals, you can apply for this label. So I hope someone, some of you listening are eligible in those categories and you apply. And the application process is coordinated with a program called LegitScript to automatically verify your license when you apply. And you also can't just be like a total out-of-the-box newbie on YouTube. You have to have a little bit of proven track record on on the platform in order to be eligible. So number one, you have to follow YouTube's monetization guidelines, even if you're not monetizing. Number two, you have to have more than 2,000 public watch hours in the last 12 months, which shouldn't be too hard to get. Or you can have more than 5 million shorts views, YouTube shorts, which is like kind of like reels for YouTube, in the last 90 days. You must primarily focus on covering health info, and you may not have any active community guideline strikes in order to apply. And then once you apply, at this time, it takes one to two months to hear back with the decision. And they do note that acceptance is not permanent. Your channel is actively monitored monitored, and your eligibility can be revoked if you go against the guidelines. And it's important to note that right now, this program is only available in the US and Germany right now. So I find this so, so, so interesting and applicable to any healthcare professional creating information online, be it on social media, YouTube, or your own website. The intentions of Google are clear. They want to elevate information coming from trustworthy, authoritative sources, but exactly how they will manage to do that is clearly still being worked out. But I think it's prudent that we, as licensed and credentialed healthcare professionals, do our best to stay ahead of these developments and work to comply with as many of the suggestions as we can. Creating content that aligns with what Google wants to rank and display can only help boost our reach and future-proof us in this era of change in both Google and YouTube rankings in the health niche. 
So if this topic sounds interesting to you and you want to take action steps right away, again, I recommend enrolling in my signature course, SEO Made Simple, to learn the exact things you can do on your website to comply with these recommendations. I've broken down each applicable recommendation and demonstrated exactly how you can apply it on your own website. So if you just follow the steps outlined in the course, you will be way ahead of the game for demonstrating trust on your website. And finally, before we end this episode today, I also wanted to chat real quick about how AI is being utilized in the healthcare information industry, because I think this also may have future impacts on those of us who provide healthcare information online, on your websites, on YouTube, or on social media. The main update from the Google Health announcement was that Google has developed a type of AI technology called MedPalm that is specifically designed to give authoritative answers to medical questions. It's not publicly available yet, and it's still in testing and development, but they are talking about it at the Google Health event, so it's safe to assume that it will likely become publicly available at some point in the future. And actually, quick update, in the time period that I started writing my notes for this episode and when I actually went to record it, Google announced on April 13th, 2023, that they are actually opening up limited access to MedPalm 2 to a limited segment of Google Cloud users for testing and feedback. And essentially, MedPalm, or more specifically MedPalm 2, which is the version they're currently on, is a large language model, kind of like ChatGPT, that is specifically trained on medical Q&A datasets, and it's meant to answer medical questions. The current version, as I said, that they are working on is called MedPalm 2, and it was able to earn an expert level 85% passing score on US medical licensing test questions, both multiple choice format and open-ended questions that require rationale. And the language model was trained on seven different medical data sets. MedQA, which includes thousands of multiple choice questions from US medical licensing exams, MedMCQA, which includes almost 200,000 multiple choice questions from medical licensing exams in India, PubMedQA, which is a PubMed question and answering data set built around research article titles, abstracts, and conclusions, LiveQA, which was a data set of about 100 consumer health questions received by the U.S. National Library of Medicine, Medication QA, which was a data set of over 600 real consumer questions about common medications, MMLU, which is the Massive Multitask Language Understanding data set, which is also used by ChatGPT, that includes multiple choice questions on clinical topics, medicine, biology, and more. And then they added a seventh additional data set called Health Search QA that was created by the MedPalm developers that uses over 3,000 commonly searched for questions, like things that people type into Google, about medical conditions and associated symptoms. And Google has said that they're really excited about the potential of this technology for things like answering complex medical questions, finding insights from complicated and unstructured medical texts, the ability to draft responses in healthcare and to summarize information from medical documentation, internal data sets, and also bodies of scientific knowledge. However, of course, they also acknowledge that there is a chance for harm from this technology and it needs to be carefully tested for its ability to stick to the established medical consensus, its medical reasoning, its knowledge recall, and of course, potential biases that could perpetuate harm in healthcare. 
And they are getting feedback from clinicians and non-clinicians from all around the world to try and make this something that can actually be used safely in the real world. And I don't know about you, but I could imagine a future where perhaps there is this medical Q&A tool or website or whatever it ends up being uh, that is available to visit directly and people can get trustworthy answers to their medical questions without wanting or needing to visit Google anymore. And I have also seen people theorize that perhaps rather than waiting for forever for an appointment with a primary care physician, perhaps people with certain needs could first have an AI visit with a medically trained chatbot. The reasoning behind this is that at some point, the potential risk of the chatbot being wrong and causing harm could be lower than, you know, in some scenarios, having to wait a super long time for an in-person appointment with a doctor. It's all still very up in the air, obviously, and I don't think a change like this is coming anytime really soon, but I do think it's important to keep abreast of these developments so that we aren't caught off guard if things change. If we can see what may be coming, we will be better equipped to adapt our business models to thrive no matter what the future holds. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed my ramblings and stay tuned for next week with more insights on how to tell if you've been hit by a Google algorithm update and what to do if you have lost traffic. Hope you have a great rest of your day and thank you as always for being a listener. If you enjoy the type of content I'm putting out here, share it with a friend, share it with anyone you think who might find this information helpful. That's the number one way we get more listenership. Uh, Yeah, share, 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 share far and wide. Thank you again, and I will catch you next week.